So I want to start this morning with a statement. It's a statement that I've heard people say many times, and you may have heard it too. It's a statement I've probably made before, which is this. Um, I'm not really good at conflict. You ever heard someone say that? I'm just not really good at conflict. When someone says that, they're usually referring to an, a natural kind of innate response they have to conflict that doesn't tend to go very well for them. And I've heard this from two different types of people. For some, uh, it's people who tend to have more of a flight response to conflict, kind of avoiding it. For others, it's more of a fight response. You tend to kind of like overwhelm people when you're in that discussion with someone in the face of conflict. Whether you're fight or whether you're flight, I tend to find that both of those don't do that great of a job at resolving conflict. Because if you're the fight type, people tend to move themselves away from you. And if you're the flight type, you tend to kind of move yourself away from other people. So time for some some honesty to the extent you're willing. How many of you are more of the fight type? You know, you're in a conflict. There you are. Yeah, a couple of you I knew already. You don't have to raise your hand. (laughs) Looking at you, Ben Schaefer. Um, So yeah, yeah, a couple of people are, are more, you know, fight. How many of you are more the flight type? Any flight risks out there? Yeah, that's kind of more my natural bent. I became a supervisor at work and you just have to do it. But my natural bent is more towards the flight. Now, here's a question I want to ask you. That's a question we, we talked about in our life group the other week. How's that working out for you? That particular response. How's that working out for you, let's say, in your families? You know, in our life group, we we're saying probably most of the conflict we experience is in like our extended families. And sometimes it means there's an elephant in the room that never gets discussed. And sometimes it means relationships are broken and we don't talk anymore because of a really difficult conversation that happened. If you're a student here, how's it going in school? You know, when there's disagreements and there's conflict, you tend to move towards the person and work it out? Or does it become all too easy to kind of go the way of gossip and begin to talk to other people about the person you have a conflict with? Or here's one. How's it going in the world of social media? Social media is really good for dealing with conflicts. You know, resolving it, talking it through. People tend to feel really, you know, gentle behind the screen as they communicate. Uh, For a lot of times in life, those responses aren't working really well for us. But more to the point of this morning's message, how does it go for you among God's people? How does your natural innate response to conflict work itself out in the church? When there's someone in life group that really bothers you by how they're acting and it really annoys you, you fight or you flight, how does that work? If there's someone on a ministry team and you guys are butting heads because you, do, you see things differently, are you fight or you flight and how's that working out for you? Some of you might say, Dave, actually my way works pretty well for me. You know, I'm the fight type and I tend to win arguments and get what I want. It works. You might win arguments. I'm not sure people are going to feel that safe coming to you about things. And if you're the flight risk, you might think it's really good. My life's really peaceful because I don't get in any arguments at church or any conflicts. And, and I tried this once, actually. For years, I went to a really large mega church. I went on a Sunday, sang songs, listened to the sermon, and left immediately to try to get in the, into the parking lot and go home before everyone else. And I didn't have any conflict for years. I also didn't have community as a Christian. 
So I think the question for us this morning is, as much as what comes natural may be what is comfortable, is what comes natural what God would have for us in his church? Even though it's hard, is unity worth fighting for in our church? That's the question I want to ask this morning. And to to get an answer, I want to go to Psalm 133. So you can turn to Psalm 133. I'm just going to go ahead and read through it. This is what's, um, it's only three verses. I'm reading it out of the New International Version. And I'm going to start with the title. Psalm 133, a song of ascents of David. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life evermore. I believe what this psalm is saying to us and how it's relevant to what we've been talking about so far is that unity is worth fighting for. It's hard. It might not feel possible sometimes, but unity is worth fighting for. And then this psalm is going to show us basically three reasons why. First, unity is worth fighting for is because unity is an act of worship to God. Second, because unity can show people that the church, that God's people are different. And third, because unity is possible with God. First, unity is an act of worship. Why do I say that? Well, you need to look at the context of this psalm. All of the psalms, all 150, have been called the Jewish hymn book. Okay, these are songs that were prayed, chanted, sung. That's how Israel used it. And these collection of psalms in 120 to 134 are called the Songs of Ascent. Remember that in the title? A Song of Ascent. What does that mean? Well, the Songs of Ascent would be sung three times a year during the Jewish festivals when the people of Israel would ascend to Jerusalem. You're always ascending when you went to Jerusalem where the tabernacle was and later the temple. So God's people would sing these songs when they went up to Jerusalem. Now, what's really interesting about this particular psalm, if you look in verse 1, What is it about how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity? This is a worship song about unity. It's a worship song that has maybe a little bit more to do with this horizontal relationship we have with one another as God's people than just the vertical relationship we have with God. Which means we are worshiping God in how we relate to one another. The author of this psalm is connecting how we treat one another with our worship of God. Jesus saw this connection. He taught in Matthew 5. He said, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. What Jesus is saying here is, if you're in the middle of worship experience, For them, it was maybe being at the temple offering a gift. And you realize, I'm in conflict with somebody. Someone has an issue with me. Jesus encouraged us to put that offering down and to go make things right with the person with whom we have a conflict. And he said this because his vision was, when you leave your worship experience, you're still worshiping me when you go to get things right with another person. 
which means what we do in our relationships, relationships with one another between Monday and Saturday is just as much an experience of worship, an act of worship, as when we just sang songs with the worship team. So verse 1 is showing, when it talks about how great unity is, how important unity is, something to be sung about, something to connect with our worship, it's saying that unity is worth fighting for. Now, I should probably spend a moment to say, what am I talking about when I say unity? Because it could be misunderstood, this concept of unity. What is unity exactly? Well, there's no place in the Bible where you're going to find this Webster's Dictionary style definition of unity. Instead, the Bible gives us like word pictures or images. A couple of the images it gives us, one is the body, the human body. It's called the body of Christ. But another, more to the point of this psalm, is a family. We are unified like a family is. We are a spiritual family. Uh, if you're reading at the English Standard Version in verse 1, you probably noticed that it doesn't say God's people. It says brothers. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. All throughout the Bible, this metaphor of a spiritual family is used. And once you understand that unity is about being a spiritual family, you learn some things about what unity isn't and what unity is. First, what unity isn't. Unity isn't agreeing all the time, right? If you have a brother or sister, you know this intuitively. Unity is not always agreeing. It's not never disagreeing. At the same time, there does need to be some things we do agree about, especially as a spiritual family. When the New Testament talks about being adopted into the family of God, it says we do so through making a decision to follow Christ, to put our faith in him. So we can't just be unified as Christians in Christian unity if we don't agree about some really important things. That's why in our church constitution, we have something called our core statement of faith in which we say to be a member of this church, you need to acknowledge some core basic principles that Christians have always believed. The other thing that unity isn't, you know, it's not always agreeing. Um, it's not also never having boundaries. I would not want anyone to leave here and think, so this person like keeps on coming to my house in the middle of the night from the church wanting to talk. And unity means I just can't like tell him to go home. I need to like talk to him. There are some times where, uni- you know, where boundaries need to be put in place with all relationships, even our closest family relationships. So what is unity? If unity isn't those things, what is it? I actually think a pretty good definition of unity is our church mission statement. Does anyone know our church mission statement? Shout it out. Chris Nadi. there you go. Living a life of worship together. This is on the cover of your bulletin every week. This is a really good definition, I think, of unity because it brings together two things that are necessary. First, living a life of worship together. It's so important that we actually be worshiping God as Christians. But to be in unity, we're not just worshiping God in our basements or by ourselves in the car. We have to be in relationship with other believers. So that's why we say we're living a life of worship together. But it's also not just being together. You know, if we were just hanging out together and it had nothing to do with our faith in Christ and we were worshiping something else, then we would just be together. We might be a country club, but we're not a church. Being a church, experiencing Christian unity, is living lives of worship together. It's worshiping God in our relationships with one another. 
As one recent author said um, in a book called Ministry Mantras, one of the mantras he mentioned was, unity is disagreeing without disengaging. So you might disagree with somebody, but are you now saying, I'm through with you? Are you now overpowering the person and saying, I've got to get my way? Or are you saying, I'm, I'm not going to disengage. We're going to see this through because this is how I worship God. So the first reason that unity is worth fighting for is because it's an act of worship. The second reason unity is worth fighting for is because it shows people that the church is different. What do I mean by this? Read verse 2 with me. I should say, before we read verse 2, the way this psalm works in its structure is verse 1 is kind of the basic statement. tells us how great unity is. Verses 2 and 3 are poetic expressions of, how, of why unity is so great. We'll unpack it after we read it. It, it being unity, is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. Makes sense, right? I don't need to explain that, do I? Someone, I was talking to someone this week about this psalm, and he's like, this doesn't make any sense. You know, like he just wants to move right to Psalm 134. This is kind of like your biblical Shakespeare moment, where you're like, could you just say it the way that makes sense? Why do you need to say it in this poetic language? And you're talking about a person's beard and things being stuck in it. This is gross. What are you talking about here? Well, remember, this is Hebrew poetry. And sometimes poetry says things different than how a car manual says things. As Hebrew poetry, um, one of the things you're going to often find helpful, and I would say just a little Bible study thing. Whenever you're reading the Bible and you go, this doesn't make any sense, it's worth asking, what does the context say? So if you notice, one of the names in there is Aaron. Aaron, you might know, is the first of the Jewish priests. The priests were people who represented the people, the Jewish community, to God. And they were in charge of the sacrificial system and community worship. Well, it was important to the people of Israel and to God to be able to show that the priests had a different task, a different role than everybody else in the community. So they had a practice whereby they would show this. And this practice is mentioned in the book of Leviticus. It says, He poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. They would put oil on the head of the priest, and this oil would flow down the face. There was so much of it, it would come down the beard and then onto the collar. And the whole point of putting oil on the head was it was to consecrate. It was to set apart the priest and show that this priest had a really important task, different than everyone else's task. So what does this have to do with unity? What it has to do with unity is, just as oil is a symbol for the priest, of him being different than everybody else in the community. So unity among God's people shows a watching world that we are different. There's something different about God's people that we live together in unity. I mean, just think about this. If people were to visit our church and see this group of very different people living in unity with one another, it would say something about how different we were. Because you don't see unity all the time out there in the workaday world. Um, if you watch CNN or Fox News, you don't see a lot of unity in political discourse. If you try coaching your child's sports team, as I have, and you look at how parents interact with referees, you don't see a lot of unity out there. 
If you go to work and you see somebody trying to climb the corporate ladder and stab another person in the back, you don't see a lot of unity. And none of those experiences are probably that shocking to us. We're like, yeah, it's just how things are. That's how people do things. But if people were to come to our church and they were to see disunity like that, they should be shocked. It's a problem if they come here and they just say, oh, you know, it's like wherever, like everybody else. They have conflict. They don't resolve it. They gossip about each other. They form cliques. They never work anything out. I know that at work. I know that at, you know, kids' sports teams. I know that in my family. The church should be different. And why should the church be different? Because when people see how we interact, they make some assumptions about who God is. Which means we have here both a danger and we have an opportunity. A danger and an opportunity. The fact that we can make a difference. That that showing we're different actually impacts how people see us. First, the danger. The danger is if we don't do this well, then people could visit our church and assume something about God by how we are together. There was a Pew Research study that came out last year. And the whole study was about, why are people leaving the church? Why is that happening? There's a lot of reasons given, but one of the reasons given was this. I'm going to come back to that. Wait a minute here. Where are you? There it is. I'm going to go back. The reason given was, I see organized religious groups as more divisive than uniting. That's one of the common reasons people gave for why they left the church. Have you ever talked to someone who said, if your God is real, why do you have so many denominations? There are over 9,000 Protestant denominations. Now, there's some reasons for some of those, and some of those are just different ministry philosophies, and there's a lot of unity amongst different denominations. But that critique should give us pause as to how we are doing at showing a watching world that our God is powerful enough to bring us together. I actually know someone personally who in their adult years, decided to give God another chance. They started going to a church um, and exploring faith again, and they wound up leaving the church because of how they saw conflict being handled. They began to see gossip happening, unresolved conflict, and they said, I know this story, I'm out. And to the best of my knowledge, the person hasn't come back to a church since. And they aren't in a relationship with God. That's the danger that we have if we don't take seriously this call to show we're different by our unity. Now, even though there's a danger, there's also an opportunity. And we need to take that seriously too. There's an opportunity to to be what Phil Yancey calls God's driver's license bureau. What do I mean by that? What does Phil Yancey mean by it? Phil Yancey basically means by it is, have you ever been to a driver's license bureau? Um, There's all sorts of different people there. Because everybody in the community needs to come there to get their driver's license and get all that worked out. What Phil Yancey is saying is the church similarly, you know, because salvation is not discriminatory, we have all sorts of different people, different personalities, socioeconomic backgrounds, races. We're all different. And if we can make that work, if we can live in unity with one another, that says something about our God. It says, wow, there's something different here. And maybe, maybe this Jesus thing is real. Maybe because there has to be something holding these people together. None of this diverse group of people would ever just get together to hang out. Jesus said as much when Jesus said these words in John 17. 
He's praying for us, his disciples through the ages, right before he died. And he said to his father, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Jesus is saying is, if we are brought to complete unity with one another, if we worship God through how we relate to one another, then people will begin to realize that he is among us, that God sent Jesus into our midst and is doing something very amazing here. That's why it was so shocking in the first century when Jews and Gentiles were getting together. Why would Jews and Gentiles get together? It's one of the big points that came up in the series that Keith did on race and the Christian life. When we live together amidst this diversity and show a unity in faith in Christ, that says something about the reality of God. So a second reason, in addition to it being an act of worship, a second reason that we want to fight for unity in our church is because it can show that God's people are different and therefore show that our God is different. There's a third reason that we should fight for unity in our church. And that third reason is that it's possible. Unity is possible. Why why am I saying that? What does that have to do with a reason to fight for unity? Well, I started off by saying that many of us feel that we have this natural ingrained response around unity. I mean, I'm sorry, around conflict. And it's really hard to change it. Sometimes it feels impossible to change it. It feels like it's just too ingrained. It's too comfortable. I don't want to have to deal with the messiness of conflict. It's just impossible. And what we're going to see here in verse 3 is it might be impossible in our own strength, but it actually is very possible in God's presence. Read with me verse 3. And again, we have more poetic imagery here to help us understand the importance of unity. Verse 3. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life evermore. Okay, so unity is like oil, and now unity is like dew from Mount Hermon. Equally strange. What exactly is the author trying to say there? Again, context is key. Mount Hermon was at that time, it was the tallest mountain in Israel. It's now considered, I believe, part of Syria. But at the time, tallest mountain in Israel, also the wettest mountain, the most fertile place in Israel. Uh, A lot of humidity at the top, and there would be a lot of water droplets, also referred to as dew, that would collect there. And the image we're seeing the psalmist give is of this water collecting on Mount Hermon flowing down to the much drier Mount Zion. Mount Zion being the place where Jerusalem was, where God's temple was, where God's presence was. And what David, the author, is trying to show us here is that just as water can flow down from Mount Hermon down to Zion and bring new life and productivity, so God's presence can give new life and productivity and unity where there was none. In other words, The unity that's so good and pleasant in verse 1 is only possible because of God's presence, his life-giving presence that's talked about in verse 3. That's what the psalm is trying to say. Unity is only possible with God. Now, how does unity become possible in God's presence for us? 
If you're feeling like, I can't do this, I can't work out conflicts, how does unity become possible? It doesn't mean you go to a building somewhere. You don't go to a temple or a tabernacle like the Jews did. Um, you don't come to church for, because somehow a miracle takes place when you're in church that unity happens. You should be part of church uh, family. You should come for corporate worship. But it's not like it's just a magical thing that happens. God's presence isn't somewhere we go. In fact, God's presence, according to 1 Corinthians 3, is always in our midst because all of us have the Holy Spirit. What does Paul say there? Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? We have the Holy Spirit, all of us collectively, and therefore we have what we need, the power we need from the spirit to be able to bring about unity. We have what's called in in, uh, Ephesians 4, a unity of the spirit. That doesn't mean that there's not something for us to do. Okay, what do we need to do? Paul says in Ephesians 4, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. We need to do something if we're going to find unity among other Christians. We need to make every effort. But make every effort to do what? When you're staring a conflict in the face, when you're dealing with someone in your life group on a ministry team that's frustrating you, When you're experiencing conflict, what do you do to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit? Well, in the sister letter to Ephesians, Paul talks about this. He gives a lot of how-tos. I can't go through all the how-tos. There's a book called The Peacemaker that I have mentioned in the bulletin that I encourage you to read. It gives a lot of that. But one starting point is mentioned in Colossians 3 for us to think about. This is what Paul says. To have unity, we need to bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, bear with one another. That means I'm not avoiding other people, nor does it mean I'm just going at the person and overwhelming them and getting them to move away from me. I'm actually staying present. I'm bearing with them. I might be disagreeing, but I'm not disengaging from them. Now, sometimes it's appropriate. Someone says something frustrating at church and you go, I need to overlook that. I'm just going to show grace and overlook it. But we shouldn't kid ourselves that we're overlooking it if what's happening is we're just quiet about it and we're quietly resenting them for what they've done and said. Resentment isn't overlooking a sin. Bearing with someone, staying present with them and staying in relationship with them. Now you might think this is impossible. You don't know the people I know. You don't know what people have done or have said to me. I can't bear with them. I I had one um, person tell me once, I'm right now trying to figure out who I need to cut out of my life. Who makes my life harder than I need to cut out? That's what the person was saying. And you might have other people who you feel like you need to forgive, but you know what? I've had to forgive them before. I can't do this anymore. They're just taking advantage. I get that. I've been in those circumstances. People have probably thought that about me at times. But here's the thing that I think we can't lose sight of. God bears with me. God forgives me over and over and over again. Not because I deserve it, but because of his love. Right after, in Colossians 3.13, the same verse, Paul tells us why he gives this advice to bear with each other and forgive one another. And he says, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. That's why we fight for unity. God, through Jesus, fought for unity with us. 
but for a relationship with us by fighting sin, death, the enemy, and the cross. And in his resurrection, he overcame those enemies. For us, if Christ fights for unity with us, we are then to follow his example in fighting for unity with each other. As unnatural as it may feel, as hard as it is, knowing that it might be impossible on your own, but it's possible with God's presence. So should we fight for unity? Yes, because it's a way we worship God, because it's a way we show that we are different as a church than everywhere else, and that our God is different. And it's possible to do this, given God's example and his presence in our midst. So I began this morning asking you some questions. You know, how you naturally handle conflict. And I want to close with this question. Next time you're facing conflict with God's people, next time you're in conflict in our church, are you going to do what comes natural? Am I going to do what comes natural? Or am I going to fight for unity among God's people for God's glory? Let's pray for his help. God, we are uh, inadequate on our own to deal with the messy human interactions that so often take place where hurts happen, where misunderstandings happen, where resentment happens. Sometimes we're just exhausted and we want to run away or sometimes we're just angry and we want to let people have it. We want to worship you in our relationships, in all of life, but particularly among your people, because we want to be a sign to the world that there's something different here, that you really do make a difference in your people. So I pray for grace, that you would make us a church that is different, a church that is unified. I pray for our worldwide church, that it would be a sign to all the nations of unity, that we are all together worshiping you, following after Jesus. You know each of us and each of our struggles with this area. I pray that this week you would begin to work on our hearts and show us what we may need to change to be able to live these lives of worship together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.